BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. Several California counties have recommended or are requiring that everyone, even if they're fully vaccinated for COVID, wear masks indoors. Now the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging people who are fully vaccinated to wear masks in public indoor spaces where the virus is surging and also in all schools. KQED's Laura Clivens has more. In schools, this guidance applies to teachers, staff, students, and visitors, regardless of vaccination status. Stanford's Dr. Yvonne Maldonado worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics, which made a similar recommendation for schools just two weeks ago. We were just operationally thinking that this would be much more efficient and easier to implement than trying to track who was vaccinated, who was wearing their mask, who wasn't. Maldonado says in recent weeks, the spread of the Delta variant has demonstrated why masking like this is important. The CDC cited evidence that even vaccinated people can have high viral loads of the Delta variant. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. The new CDC recommendation applies to regions with high or substantial COVID-19 rates, and that includes 45 of California's 58 counties. Public health officials in California say they're reviewing the new CDC guidance, but have not yet decided whether to alter the state's rules on indoor masking. Meanwhile, Yolo County is issuing new requirements on wearing masks indoors. Here is County Public Health Officer Dr. Amy Sisson speaking during yesterday's Board of Supervisors meeting. In order to ensure that unvaccinated persons wear masks as already required, in addition to protecting fully vaccinated persons from the current downpour, I am preparing to issue a new health officer order that will require all persons, regardless of vaccination status, to wear a mask indoors. The Yolo County requirement will go into effect beginning this Friday. Following in the footsteps of the University of California system, the Cal State University system has announced that students and staff will be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 if they intend to take part in in in-person classes in the fall. The policy will make room for medical and religious exemptions, and unvaccinated students will have to undergo frequent testing. All campuses will have to verify the vaccination status of students, staff, and faculty by no later than September 30th, although that deadline may vary from campus to campus. The CSU system had previously said that any vaccine requirement would come only after the vaccines received full approval from the FDA, but it's still unclear when that might occur. The decision to implement the rule was unanimous among all 23 Cal State University presidents. Arguing that parents know what's best for their children more than government and public health officials, two groups are suing the state of California to end the mask mandate in schools. The San Diego-based Let Them Breathe Parents Organization and the Reopen California Schools group argue in the lawsuit that masks harm children's physical and mental health, and the groups want the decision to mask up left to parents or guardians. California currently requires all K-12 students to wear masks indoors while on campus, a rule which will remain in place when the academic year starts for most schools in the fall. But mask exemptions
exemptions are made for families on a case-by-case basis. The California Department of Public Health has declined to comment on the lawsuit, but stands by the mask mandate as an effective way to fight COVID-19. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wildlands fire crews were able to take advantage of cooler weather and even some light rain yesterday as they continue to battle the massive Dixie fire burning in Plumas and Butte counties. The blaze has burned more than 217,000 acres and destroyed at least 31 structures, including some homes. Most of that damage assessment so far is from the remote community of Indian Falls in Plumas County. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom and Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak will be touring the site of the Tamarack fire south of Lake Tahoe later today. That fire crossed over into Nevada last week. The blaze has burned more than 68,000 acres, but crews have made significant progress over the last few days in getting better containment. Turning to the environment, baby salmon are dying in California rivers by the thousands because of abnormally warm temperatures following a series of recent heat waves. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero explains. Salmon have about a three-year life cycle. A population decline in one year could have long-lasting effects on the future of the fish. A historic drought, climate change, and agencies letting water out of reservoirs early in the year are threatening the viability of the species. Andrea Poole, the Natural Resources Defense Council, told a joint Senate and Assembly hearing today that all baby salmon in the Sacramento River could die this year. Populations that spawn and lay their eggs below Shasta Dam will be cooked to death. Poole says California leaders need to realize the state's water system is designed for a climate that no longer exists and need a plan to save the species. For the California Report, I'm Ezra David Romero. Squaw Valley, the famous ski resort that once hosted the Winter Olympics, is preparing for a name change this fall. In response to community concerns about the derogatory connotations of its name towards Native American women. But another Squaw Valley, a small foothills community in Fresno County, is at the center of its own proposed name change. But as Valley Public Radio's Sarith Hawk reports, that sparked a debate. Gladys Dick McKinney has just made a quick stop for strawberry jello at the Dollar General on Highway 180. 
She's making a cake for her brother's birthday. But before she heads out, she takes a minute to talk to me about the proposed name change and even asks me to sit in her air-conditioned car. Go ahead, the door's open. She says she's lived here all of her life and doesn't mind the name. As far as Squaw Valley uh, offending me, that name does not offend me. And I'm an Indian woman, a mother. Dick McKinney is part of the Dunlap Band of Mono Indians. She says she first heard of the effort when it was scheduled for discussion at an Orange Cove City Council meeting in January this year. We're not even in the district. That's a city. We're county. The discussion was postponed, but not before it caused an uproar on social media because it surprised so many locals. Dick McKinney says she understands that the term may hold different meanings in other tribal regions. What does that have to do with us? That's a language in that area. Here, she says it just means women, even if it came from outside settlers. Dick McKinney suggests I talk to another lifelong resident, Lenora Cannon. We head east and a few minutes later arrive at a ranch house off of 180. Cannon, who is white, tells me everyone knows her as Muggs. My grandfather used to put me on the horse, they said, in front of him and say, what a cute little Muggins, and that name stuck. Muggs is 92, and she's a fixture here. She says she called up her Native American friends when she first heard of the name change to see how they felt about it, and most wanted to keep it. So why would somebody come up with that now when me, I'm 92 now, I never thought of something like that. It was always a thing of beauty to me. But Muggs realizes the name change is not up to her. According to the 2010 census, about 3,000 people live here. 85% are white, less than 3% are Native American. I would have to know how my Indian friends actually felt because I believe they're the ones that they would be the ones that would be hurting. And I agree with anything that they want. But Roman Raintree disagrees that locals don't want a name change. He says the tribes in the area are still applying for federal recognition, so they're afraid to speak out. I'd like to bring our uh, first uh, speaker. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he held a virtual presentation to discuss the history behind the word squaw. Raintree says the name is sexually derogatory to Native American women and girls, and that using it enables a history of violence against indigenous women that is still present today. This name lends itself to complicity. He's working on an application to change the name with the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. And an online petition he started on Change.org has more than 16,000 signatures to date. Fresno County Supervisor Nathan Magsig oversees the unincorporated area as part of his district. With this effort, I, I have no problem changing any name of any community, but it needs to be a process that, that's driven by the local people. Magsig says he's yet to see consolidated local support for the name change or efforts to hold a town hall meeting that all residents can attend. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno. Santa Barbara has joined the list of California cities, including San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and San Luis Obispo, moving away from natural gas in new buildings. It's one way to fight the climate crisis. From KCBX reporter Rachel Showalter has the story. 
The Santa Barbara City Council voted unanimously to prohibit natural gas in all new construction in the city. This ordinance only affects new buildings where an electric alternative is available. Cooking appliances in restaurants and institutional kitchens are exempt. Alelia Parento is the city's energy and climate manager. She says this ordinance is meant to help achieve the city's 2035 carbon neutrality goal. Every new building locks in future emissions for decades to come. These are long-term assets, and we have an opportunity to avoid those emissions in the future, which is a prudent approach when we're trying to get to zero. And that Santa Barbara needs to act defensively against the impacts of climate change because the city is especially vulnerable to sea level rise and wildfire, which are exacerbated by the climate crisis. Members of the public expressed concern about whether the electric grid could handle this increase in electrification, but Parento says the city's phased approach over time will allow for the transition. Still, council members support it. Here's Mike Jordan. Philosophically, in the way we want to generate our heat, generate our energy, this is clearly the path we need to go. And Megan Harmon. I've often been asked lately, you know, how are we as a city going to effectuate our really aspirational climate goals? And and this is one of those ways. The ordinance will take effect for all building permits issued after January 1st, 2022. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Showalter in San Luis Obispo. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, July 28th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. The law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at perkinscoie.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.